Brigands of the Moon by Ray Cummings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Brigands of the Moon by Ray Cummings. Chapter 10. I had not been able at first to understand why Captain Carter wanted Miko left at liberty. Within me there was that cry of vengeance, as though to strike Miko down would somehow lessen my own grief. Whatever Carter's purpose, Snap had not known it. But Balch and Dr. Frank were in the captain's confidence, all three of them working on some plan of action. It was obvious that at least two of our passengers were plotting with Miko and George Prince, trying on this voyage to learn what they could about Grantline's activities on the moon, scheming, doubtless, to seize the treasure when the Planetara stopped at the moon on the return voyage. I thought I could name those masquerading passengers, Obhan, supposedly of Venus Mystic, and Rance Rankin, who called himself an American magician. Those two, Snap and I agreed, seemed most suspicious. And there was the purser. I sat for a time on the deck outside the chart room with Snap. Then Carter summoned us back, and we sat listening while he, Balch, and Dr. Frank went on with their conference. Listening to them, I could not but agree that our best plan was to secure evidence which would incriminate all who were concerned in the plot. Miko, we were convinced, had been the Martian who followed Snap and me from Halsey's office in Greater New York. George Prince had doubtless been the invisible eavesdropper outside the radio room. He knew, and had told the others, that Grantline had found that priceless metal on the moon, and that the Planetara would stop there on the way home. But we could not incarcerate George Prince for being an eavesdropper, nor had we the faintest possible evidence against Obhan or Rankin, and even the purser would probably be released by the interplanetary court of Ferrick Shan when it heard our evidence. There was only Miko. We could arrest him for the murder of Anita, but if we did that now, the others would be put on their guard. It was Carter's idea to let Miko remain at liberty for a time and see if we could identify and incriminate his fellows. The murder of Anita obviously had nothing to do with any plot against Grantline Moon Treasure. Why, exclaimed Balch, there might be, probably are, huge Martian interests concerned with this thing. These men aboard are only emissaries, making this voyage to learn what they can. When they get to Farrakhan, they'll make their report and then we'll have a real danger on our hands. Why, an outlaw ship could be launched from Farrakhan that would beat us back to the moon. And Grantline is entirely without warning of any danger. It seemed obvious. Unscrupulous criminals in Ferrickshan would be dangerous indeed once these details of Grantline were given them. So now it was decided that, in the remaining nine days of our outward voyage, we would attempt to secure enough evidence to arrest all these plotters. I'll have them all in the cage when we land, declared Carter grimly. They'll make no report to their principles. <laughs> the futile plans of men. Yet, at the time, we thought it practical. We were all doubly armed now. 
bullet projectors, and heat ray cylinders. And we had several eavesdropping microphones, which we planned to use whenever occasion offered. Only twenty-eight hours of this eventful voyage had passed. The Planetara was some six million miles from Earth. It blazed behind us. A tremendous giant. The body of Anita was being made ready for burial. George Prince was still in his stateroom. Glutz, effeminate little hairdresser, who waxed rich acting as beauty doctor for the women passengers, and who, in his youth, had been an undertaker, had gone with Dr. Frank to prepare the body. Gruesome details. I tried not to think of them. I sat, numbed, in the chart room. An astronomical burial. There was little precedent for it. I dragged myself to the stern deck where, at 5 a.m., the ceremony took place. We were a solemn little group, gathered there in the checkered starlight, with the great vault of the heavens around us. A dismantled electronic projector, necessary when a long-range gun was mounted, had been rigged up in one of the deck ports. They brought out the body. I stood apart, gazing reluctantly at the small bundle, wrapped like a mummy in a dark metallic screen cloth. A patch of black silk rested over her face. Four cabin stewards carried her, and beside her walked George Prince. A long black robe covered him, but his head was bare, and suddenly he reminded me of the ancient play character of Hamlet. His black, wavy hair, his finely chiseled, pallid face, set now in a stern patrician cast. And staring, I realized that, however much of the villain this man might be, at this instant, walking beside the body of his dead sister, he was stricken with grief. He loved that sister with whom he had lived since childhood, and to see him now, no one could doubt it. The little procession stopped in a patch of starlight by the port. They rested the body on a bank of chairs. The black-robed chaplain, roused from his bed and still trembling from the excitement of this sudden, inexplicable death on board, said a brief, solemn little prayer. An appeal that the almighty ruler of all these blazing worlds might guard the soul of this gentle girl whose mortal remains were now to be returned to him. Ah, if ever God seemed hovering close, it was now, at this instant, on this starlit deck floating in the black void of space. Then Carter, for just a moment, removed the black shroud from her face. I saw her brother gaze silently, saw him stoop and implant a kiss, and turn away. I did not want to look, but I found myself moving slowly forward. She lay so beautiful, her face white and calm and peaceful in death. My sight blurred. Easy, Greg, Snap was whispering to me. He had his arm around me. Come on away. 
They tied the shroud over her face. I did not see them as they put the body in the tube, sent it through the exhaust chamber, and dropped it. But a moment later I saw it, a small, black, oblong bundle hovering beside us. It was perhaps a hundred feet away, circling us. Held by the planetara's bulk, it had momentarily become our satellite. It swung around us like a moon. Gruesome satellite, by nature's laws forever to follow us. Then, from another tube at the bow, Blackstone operated a small Zed-co-ray projector. Its dull light caught the floating bundle, neutralizing its metallic wrappings. It swung off at a tangent, speeding, falling free in the dome of the heavens, a rotating black oblong. But in a moment, distance dwindled it to a speck, a dull silver dot with the sunlight on it, a speck of human earth dust, falling free. It vanished. Anita. Gone. End of chapter 10